Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio, Senior Fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things what used to be called the global war on terror and what we call the long war. Today, of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Caleb Weiss. He's an editor at FDD's Long War Journal and also a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation, where he focuses on the spread of the Islamic State in Central Africa. Caleb, uh, welcome back. It's great to talk to you again. Absolutely. Thanks. Actually, you know what? No, not thanks. I'm just doing my job. That's right. Yeah, we don't have to thank each other. We don't have to to apologize, which I'm definitely guilty of doing way too much. Great to have this conversation today. Caleb and I were going to talk about the country of Mali. Things are really getting bad. Since the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban in August of 2021, Caleb and I have been, you know, having a conversation both on and off air about what's the next state that we think will collapse or large portions of a state. We we kind of narrowed it down to Mali and and Somalia. We think these are the two countries that are most ripe for a jihadist takeover. We've gone back and forth on these. Myself particularly, I've really I've really gone back and forth between Mali and and Somalia. Some of it's due to the conditions on the ground. You know, Shabab is very well organized, very well armed. They're a very effective jihadist organization. People call them the Taliban of Africa, and I think that is quite apt. But Mali is a much weaker state. And as we've seen since the coup several years ago, it's become far weaker. And Caleb published a report at Long War Journal. It's called Setting the Stage for Mali's Near Future. If you read this article, I think you're going to realize that Caleb is leaning very strongly towards Mali, and I'm in agreement with him. Very sobering look at the mess that is Mali. This is what we're going to discuss today. I'm just going to give you the quick rundown of the situation in Mali right here, and we'll get into it in a little more detail. The United Nations is leaving per the request of the Malayan government. France, which was a major counterterrorism partner, is gone. Al-Qaeda's branch there controls significant territory in northern and central Mali. It's even threatening the capital of Bamako. The Islamic State's Sahara province has carved out a significant amount of territory in northern Mali. The Touregs, an ethnic group in Mali, they're an open revolt. And then you have the Russian Wagner group stirring the pot with its brutal tactics, going after the Touregs, fighting with both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and really making things a mess. And, it, you know, you have all of this going on. You have a very weak state that is Mali. France and, to a lesser extent, the U.S. were keeping a lid on this jihadist problem, barely keeping a lid. I don't think it was very effective. And now you have this withdrawal. You have this increased chaos. Let's get into it. Talk to us about Mali. What do you see as being the number one threat to the Malayan government right now? I don't know if there is one singular yeah. threat. Uh, if, you know, if I had to say one singular threat, probably JNIM, just because it's more insidious, it's more, uh, you know, long-term thinking compared to, say, the Islamic State or maybe even the Tuareg. Um, but Bamako is facing a multitude of threats concurrently, um, and all of them are kind of combining into one large mess, quagmire, if you will. I mean... So just to start with JNIM, JNIM, which is, of course, you know, Al-Qaeda's group for support of Islam and Muslims. Uh, it's sort of their official branch in the Sahel, which is itself a sub-branch of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which is Al-Qaeda's official branch in North Africa. They, you know, they've been in Mali for, you know, decades at this point. Al-Qaeda has 
you know, historically in 2012, they helped take over northern Mali. Uh, you know, the French intervened, pushed them back. And then sort of since 2013, they've been ebbing and flowing in this, you know, long-lasting conflict uh, to resurrect this emirate. And I would say today they're closer than ever. Um, you know, as Bill mentioned, you know, they're they're forming what we like to call these attack, you know, zones where like, you know, they're 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 creating areas around Bamako in the suburbs and on military installations close to the capital and elsewhere attacking these areas, weakening the capital surrounding it, basically forming what, you know, essentially what the Taliban did with me, the provincial capitals in Afghanistan. Um, it's basically the setting stage, as I say, of you know the eventual collapse. But that's not it. They're also in central Mali, where they're, you know, advancing on multiple fronts. They're still combating in the Malayan military. They're combating Wagner. At the same time, they periodically do blockades of different locales, communities, cities, whatever, uh, where they prevent food, aid, water, anything getting into these cities. Uh, and they do this until the local leaders in these cities agree to implement Sharia by JNIM in return to lifting of the blockades. And, you know, these sort of localized agreements has allowed JNIM to really consolidate a lot of territory and power in central Mali. But even further north, we get to the historic city of Timbuktu, uh, where, just as I mentioned in central Mali, they did these blockades. They are besieging Timbuktu as we speak. For the past two months, they've, again, not allowed any food, aid supplies, whatever, into the city, uh, likely, and again, exchange for control of the city that they'll lift it. Uh, you know, independent agencies have estimated tens of thousands of people have fled the city. Uh, you know, there's a huge, you know, cost of living spike. Uh, it's, it's, it's real bad. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for, uh, you know, one of the world's most historic cities, Al-Qaeda is, again, about probably about to take it over. Um, and then even further north in Maui, in the extreme north uh, province of Manaka, you see Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State fighting each other, um, though there's been some rumblings that they sort of signed maybe a temporary truce to focus on fighting Wagner in Mali. Uh, but that's, again, that's unconfirmed um, for the most part, though. Caleb, if I may, I, I actually just just before we got on the show, I saw that um, JNIM actually issued a statement denying this, that yeah. they've actually signed an agreement. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't local agreement. doesn't mean it's not happening on the ground. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I just wanted to point that out. I thought it was interesting, they pro- interesting and I'm sure they don't want to cede too much ground to the Islamic no. State there. In, but, you um, know, a lot of people have reported it. There might be some kernel of truth, but I mean, again, there's nothing in open source, at least that we could tell that actually is happening. However, you know, there is historic precedent um, prior to Al Qaeda, the Islamic State fighting each other in Mali. They did cooperate. They did work together. Um, you know, they were sort of the only two Al Qaeda branches and Islamic State branches, respectively, that sort of maintained a cooperation compared to you know elsewhere around the world. So it's not, you know, impossible, but it just seems unlikely, um, especially with how bad the fighting has been between Al-Qaeda and a lot of its allies in northern Mali uh, against the Islamic State, um, which I think this is the perfect segue to, to talk about the other main issue that, that Mali is, talk, that is facing, which is the Islamic State. Uh, so, you know, I think I said this the other day to you, Bill, that if you asked me, you know, 
three, four years ago of like the state of the Islamic State in Mali, they weren't really doing much. Yeah, like they were, you know, doing some hit and runs. They were combating Al Qaeda in some places, uh, or even cooperating with them, like I just said. But you know, they really weren't a dominant force. All of that's changed. Uh, it's past several months, they've taken over, uh, you know, rural areas, rural communities, even towns uh, and communes in in that northernmost province of Mali called Manaka. And really, they control the entirety of that province, except for the the capital, which is Manaka Town. Uh, it's they're they're enacting Sharia. They're they're enforcing Sharia pretty harshly. Actually, they they put out many videos. They're not videos, but photos and statements in their weekly newsletter on the Ba, uh, talking about implementing Sharia in northern Mali. Um, so you know, for all intents and purposes, like they the Islamic State has their own little statelet right now in northern Mali that. You know, really, the government in Bamako can do nothing about. The French is there. They're not there anymore. They can't do anything. The UN is leaving. Wagner, which does have a presence in nearby Gao, also can't really do anything. So the only people that, you know, were actually making a stand against, you know, this Islamic State encroachment was Al-Qaeda. So you saw Al-Qaeda make maneuvers with local communities, local militias to try to build alliances to fight the Islamic State. A lot of communities pushed allegiance to them, uh, which Al Qaeda, you know, gladly publicized in their propaganda. Um, but also working with different Tuareg and other ethnic militias against the Islamic State. Uh, but the Islamic State prevailed, and now, again, like I said, they're controlling the majority of an entire province of Mali. Um, but in the middle of these two, essentially, you know, intertwined but different jihadi insurgencies in Mali. The government in Bamako, which, as you mentioned earlier, Bill, is, you know, was overthrown in a coup in 2020. Since then, they've been ran by the military. Uh, the, the the military junta in Bamako made a baffling decision to go to war again with the Tuareg, uh, which, you know, there, there's been hostilities between them for the past several years. Um, you know, they did nominally sign a peace agreement with Bamako in 2015. Uh, but that's it was never really implemented that well. Um, so in the past few months, there's been hostilities between the government of Bamako and the Tuareg in the north, which, for context, the, the, the ruling class in Bamako in southern Maui has always sort of subjugated the north. The north has always sort of been left out. It's never gotten enough resources. It's sort of always been impoverished. And the government of Bamako has hardly ever done anything about it. So there's historic precedent there for the, the Northerners feeling some sense of independence. And the Tuareg have famously rebelled multiple times. Uh, so with that context, you know, the, the military regime is sort of just towing the line again of what Bamako always does, which is neglect the Tuareg and the Northerners. Uh, well, that finally came to blows. The, the Tuareg, or portions of the Tuareg militias that are against Bamako are now fighting the Malian military which the Mali military is all too happy to do, thanks to their new state patrons, Wagner Group. So we're seeing Wagner and Mali launch airstrikes and raids against Tuareg militias uh, in the north, especially near Timbuktu. And the Tuareg militias are fighting back. They've you know, shot down, claimed to have shot down at least one aircraft. Uh, they claim to have captured another aircraft today. Uh, there's been heavy fighting near a town called Weir, uh, or Weira, uh, which is near Timbuktu, it's just, it, it, it's a mess, Bill. Like, it's really hard to to narrow down one 
main threat Maui is facing because all three of these things are sort of intertwined. Yeah, that's that is absolutely it's a long answer. I know. I'm, I apologize for the listeners. No, not, remember, no, no apologies. This is really what is making Molly's. If it was just one one group, resources probably could be focused. But what Caleb just you just laid out, you know, really highlights the challenge of like if you zero in on the Islamic State in Manaka, you still have that JNIM and Tuareg issue. It's this is this is why I see this. You know, look, I don't know that all of the country is going to collapse. And again, you know, that's why, you know, I said at the beginning, you know, but you might have a partition Mali here and and Islamic Emirate for Al Qaeda and a, a mini Islamic statelet for for uh, for the Islamic State. And I, I think that's I mean, to be fair, like I, as I would, there really are two Malis. There's yeah. there's the southern Mali, which is historically, again, been the powerhouse of and the state power, but they're completely different ethnically, linguistically, culturally from the north. Uh, in in the, some ways, geographically, too. I mean, you, you I mean, very geographically. I mean, it's just like, you know, the 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 remnants of colonialism. I mean, these are artificial borders put on the people of Mali. Um, and, you know, since the 60s, kind of, it's been a mess, especially with the Tuareg rebellions, um, which one thing I forgot to mention uh, in my ramble is that, you know, there's, there's very different degrees of these Tuareg militias. Some are allied to Bamako or nominally allied, I should say. Um, and some are the, the groups that rebelled against Bamako in 2012 and signed the peace agreement in, in 2015. Um, it's, it's those latter groups that are fighting Bamako and the two main factions of that alliance, which is the coordination for, for Azawad movement, CMA, um, is the MNLA or the movement, the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad, and the High Council for the Unity of Azawad, Azawad being the Tuareg word for Northern Mali. Uh, you know, these two groups, which MNLA uh, fought alongside Al Qaeda in 2012 to take over the North, but then Al Qaeda historically, or infamously rather, betrayed them and kicked them out of all the cities they helped take with Al Qaeda. Uh, and then the other is HCUA, which sort of came out of the remnants of, you know, uh, members of Ansar al-Din. Uh, Ansar al-Din being a former al-Qaeda, essentially front group, uh, which I know some people might get mad at me for saying front group, but it was. There were parts of Ansar al-Din that didn't necessarily like being an al-Qaeda front group. And these guys left and formed what now became HCUA. Uh, and these two groups, MNLA and HCUA, are formed the backbone of CMA, and CMA is the one fighting Bamako. But the UN panel of experts on Mali has done a fantastic job over the years, really outlining that even though these two Tuareg nationalist groups are fighting for independence for Tuaregs, you know, both of them, and especially HCUA, sort of still maintain ties with JNIM. Um you know, maybe not necessarily at the highest levels. In fact, the latest Cuban report from Mali states that JNIM did make some sort of move to the leadership of CMA, uh, which would be, again, MNLA and HCUA, and they sort of rejected that. But the UN was also clear that a lot of the foot soldiers were more into the idea than the leadership. Uh, and this has sort of been a precedent set by the UN for several years now, saying that you know, when push comes to shove, like the foot soldiers, especially of HCUA, you know, again, these former guys that were affiliated with Ansar Dean, uh, you know, they don't have a problem with working with JNIM. 
uh, when, you know, when they really need to. And I think this is what makes this conflict also intrinsically linked is that, you know, as the conflict between Bamako and the Tuaregs continue and probably worsens, you know, what does that mean for Jay and I am? Do they get involved with these guys that they help sometimes? You know, I think that's a real question people need to ask of what's the likelihood of, you know, Jay and I am again, Al Qaeda officially teaming up with the Tuareg again against the, the Malian government. And, you know, I think it's too early to say it's a, that's a all, but you know, for sure likelihood, but the potential is there, we, you know, with them already cooperating. This is also the Sahel where many different armed groups have members from the same tribe, same clan, same family, even. So it's not like these guys don't know each other. Um, but to like preempt what you were talking about, Bill, of like Ansar Deem being a front group for AQIM, uh, there's Al Qaeda correspondence both found inside Mali and also in the bin Laden documents that uh, that openly and explicitly talk about or even direct AQIM's foot soldiers to fight under the banner of Ansar Deen to sort of hide the Al Qaeda hand, um, which didn't really work. I think people saw through the facade pretty easily, um, but Al Qaeda did try. They they did ostensibly try to put it under Ansar Deen, which what does that make in sardine by definition right and you know and sardine at that time was permitting this to happen as well yeah. so yeah and it, the it, leader it, of and sardine yedagali who is yeah. from a notable tuareg clan who is also the leader of jnim now al-qaeda's man in the cell yeah so you know Look, we do recognize there is, when you get down to it, the nitty gritty, there's a lot of complexities, but broad scope thing, looking at the broad scope of this, you know, Ansar Adin, by and large, at that point in time, was an Al-Qaeda front or Al-Qaeda was operating under Ansar Adin as cover. But yeah, and, you know, so what do you, you know, as the fighting, you know, again, we have this Game of Thrones situation here. You have the the Malayan government. You have you know with the Wagner obviously operating in it, its own capacity, but allied with the government. You have the various Tuareg fashion factions. You have JNIM or Al Qaeda. You have the Islamic State. Is it is it likely that the Tuaregs would side with Al Qaeda's branch here as they're being pressed from multiple sides? Or again, I mean, I, I what I got from you is it's. You know, we have to watch this play out. But yeah, do you I, see I it as a, is that a natural ally for for the target when all things when the chips are all down? Again, I don't want to like make any conclusions right now. It's like the what can be considered another civil war or rebellion that is obviously you know being fomented right now between the Tuaregs and, and Bamako. I think it's a little too early to say that you know Al Qaeda would be a natural ally because they did betray them at one point. But, you know, the UN, like I said, does mention that, you know, especially with HCUA, they've maintained ties to some degree. Um, I think if push came to shove and, you know, the Tuareg were definitely being beaten back, uh, they might be open to being public about a, you know, coordination with JNIM or some sort of nominal alliance. I think as of right now, if there is a uh, cooperation between the two right now, it's definitely in the shadows and stuff we not being publicized but you know if they really need it i i you know i really don't know i don't want to say either way but like 
it's possible. It's very likely, uh, but too early, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm th- talking theoretically here, of course, you know, not looking at today. Right. But, I, I don't want to like... I don't want to pigeonhole anyone. I don't want to say that, you know, the Tuareg or oh, this is a conflict of Mali naturally, like they're going to turn to Al Qaeda. Yeah, right. Not necessarily. Like the Tuareg, you know, both MNLA and HCUA have very large militaries. They, they're they very well stocked. They have a lot of equipment. They could probably hold their own for a while. And in fact, they kind of are in Timbuktu. I mean, if it's true that they actually shot down two aircraft, that kind of speaks to the the, the capabilities that they actually have. Or perhaps maybe speaks to the the lack of capabilities that Mali has. But regardless, like the, the the Tuaregs are sort of holding their own right now. Hey, just out of curiosity, do you know what types of aircraft were shot down? Uh, one was an Su twenty five, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so then the other was uh, bomber. like a like a jet trainer. That's a jet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mali uses. Uh, so well, the other jet that was shot down was like a trainer jet, but Mali okay. uses jets and like offensive capabilities. Yeah, they can they can outfit them with various ordnance to. Okay, no, that, that was just a curiosity. No, and yeah. I'm going to quickly turn to the Islamic State um, and its presence in Manaka. What makes you? What makes them so strong? What what strengthened their position in that province? Um, what would you attribute some of the the key indicators that allowed them to go from where we would assess a couple of years ago? Yeah, there's really not much there to wow, look, we have a you know, they're holding a province. They're 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 a driver in this conflict. I would say two things. One, ethnic cleansing. The Islamic State went on a large campaign of massacring communities that did not agree with them. Uh, or if they rose up against them, the Islamic State made an example out of them. Um, the main sort of ethnic group in that area that they they committed these massacres on is called the Doasak, which the Doasak, sometimes called Tuareg, but they're not actually Tuareg. They're sort of their separate separate entity. But you know, they have their own militias, and these militias kind of held the line against the Islamic State uh, for a long time. They were favored partners by France, um, but the Islamic State kind of beat them back. Um, and especially when France left, there was, you know, this, these militias didn't receive much support. Uh, it's just, it, it was just bloody and, and messy. Um, and just not good. I mean, they just, I mean, I'm like, I think they killed like a hundred villagers in one village in one single massacre, uh, for nominally standing up against the Islamic state for refusing to like bow down to them. Um, so that's one side, but on the other side, you also have just, Massive recruitment drives throughout the Sahel by the Islamic State. I mean, the Islamic State has, yeah, I think, you know, like parts of JNIM are largely Fulani, which Fulani is sort of one of the largest ethnic groups in West Africa. Um, but the Islamic State also has various other ethnic groups that, you know, that have bought into this project either due to, you know, a perceived sense of, you know, disenfranchisement or you know some sort of stigmatization that the Islamic State has kind of allowed these nominally collect nominally forgotten about communities to enact revenge, if that makes sense. So it kind of goes hand in hand with the first thing of that, you know, in in Manaka before the Islamic State was taking it over, you saw a lot of ethnic fighting that the Islamic State was promoting and actively engaging in, in that 
Fulani fighters of the Islamic State would kill a Doasat community or another community, and like the militias from that ethnic community would go and kill Fulani villagers, which is sort of these this tit for tat ethnic communal warfare that the Islamic State was all too happy to engage in. Uh, and this sort of weakened security in that area. It sort of you know bogged everyone down. Uh, and again, like I said, when France left, there was really no one helping sort of these other communities. Mali can't do anything. Um, so yeah, it's just, it, these Al Qaeda tried to help, uh, but I think just like with the excess manpower that the Islamic State was receiving from this massive recruitment drive elsewhere around the Sahel, and with Jay and I am kind of focusing elsewhere in Mali, especially in central Mali and southern Mali, everyone kind of took their eyes off the ball in Manaka, and the Islamic State saw an opportunity and pounced on it. And would you say, you know, so why didn't the Tory come in to this region to try to help the local community? Well, I mean, they did. Oh, yeah. they did. So they were defeated. Yeah. Then. Okay. yeah, it's. I mean, both the Islamic or both Al Qaeda, rather, sorry, and sort of other militias um, did try. Um, this is what I was talking about earlier. Of you know, Al Qaeda kind of tried to play community defender where they tried to build up this community alliance with various different militias villages whatever uh which involved tuareg militias and other ethnic militias and it just the islamic state's manpower right now is just insane in the sahel i mean from the most recent pledging of allegiance to the new islamic state caliph uh abu hafs i mean it's just hundreds of guys in the sahel in like a single photo set which is just remarkable mobilization to take a photo and if they're getting that many guys in a single photo how many others do they have out there roaming around and it's just absurd amount of manpower right now for the islamic state that i think a lot of people kind of took their eyes off the ball of paying attention to them because jnim was doing so much more in such a larger part of mali uh and again the islamic state just they saw an opportunity like they do elsewhere around the world and they took advantage of it. And is there any indication on there are? I would assume you said they're recruiting across the Sahel, so I'd assume there's foreign fighters. Do we have a good indication of the makeup of the foreign I fighters mean, that are? I in think Mali? foreign fighters is probably a misnomer at this point for sure, sure. a lot of conflicts because when people think of foreign fighters, they think of you know these white dudes coming out there. Yeah, or, no, no. I I look at this as from but, outside the the country. Is yeah, that, that's but I, I think it's it's but, yeah. it's regional foreign foreign fighters yeah it's you know it's people from burkina from from niger from you know the watoral so like senegal from from ghana from togo elsewhere like so these are again by definition foreign fighters but they're they're regional yeah they're sure. they're not the the white guys or the chechens or like the the actual middle eastern arabs yeah, I've always used a different terminology for that. I always, you know, people coming from outside of the conflict zone itself. Which I mean, what's what's but crazy though? Is Sahel is one conflict zone, so it's you know, you're no, right. Wait, what's crazy though about the Islamic State in the Sahel is that, yeah, they have a lot of Fulanis, and a lot of the leadership is also Fulani. But like historically, they've been dominated by Sahrawis, which Sahrawis are like the ethnic group for Western Sahara, the little disputed territory uh, in North Africa, like. For whatever reason, like the Sahrawis, which came from a former Al Qaeda group in the Sahel, they they are now the leadership of the the Islamic State. 
Okay, and here's something, Caleb, you didn't mention in the article, but this has really kind of creeped up over the last several months with the coup in Niger. The U.S. is uh, operating a base in Niger where it's conducting drone operations, primarily intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance operations. But there's been reports that these operations have been limited as the as the coup, which isn't being called at the moment, a coup by the U.S. government, um, the the they have limited operations from this this base. Caleb, what are the impacts? Obviously, this base was being used to monitor activity, jihadist activities, with uh, in neighboring Mali from Niger. Is this? Uh, I mean, I, I'm obviously asking a question I know the answer to, but the, is this going to hurt uh, further efforts to combat both the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in Mali? I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, I mean, I think the reports recently are saying that uh, AFRICOM has restarted drone operations, quote unquote, uh, but it's just for force protection. So they're they're really only monitoring uh base 201 which is the base you're alluding to in sort of like yes. the agadez desert area which is further northwest or northeast rather sorry in in niger uh, but there is another american base that we have in yes. uh in in niame the capital yeah, uh but base I think 101 are, i believe it is right yeah but i think the drones are flown out of 201 i could be wrong but yeah Either way, like the drones are not back to full ISR capacity, according to reports. It's just force protection. Uh, obviously, that limits the U.S. capabilities to actually monitor the events on the ground. Um, I don't really know. You know, I'm sure the Americans, you know, are were doing ISR still in Mali, but I don't know who they would share that information with or what they can do with that. Obviously, they're watching Niger closely. That was our biggest security partner in the Sahel. Interestingly, you know, there is that U.S. law that if we call it a coup, we can't assist that government anymore. We've not called it a coup, uh, probably for strategic reasons, just like we never designated the Taliban a terrorist organization. Um, but, you know, uh, all I have to say is, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm shrugging my shoulders now on the screen, but it's like... You know, I really don't know. Like the, the the U.S. is is in such a pickle in the Sahel that you know, sort of like France of like, yeah. I guess on one hand, I see the necessity to like have these operations or conduct ISR because we need to know exactly what these terrorists and you know insurgent groups are doing. But what are we doing with that information? What can we do with that information? Um, and if it's just to monitor attacks on the homeland or any potential attacks on the homeland. You know, again, I could be wrong because I'm not in the intelligence community, but like, doesn't seem to really be emanating from the Sahel. So, the drone, the ISR capabilities, which when the French and the Europeans were still there, obviously that was to support them. That information was going to the French. That that information was going to other European partners. Uh, you know, when they pulled out, I'm sure the ISR was going to the American troops on the ground in Niger. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. does do sometimes combat or, you know, transit missions in Niger, most famously in 2017 during the Tango Tango uh, ambush when four U.S. Special Forces service members were killed. Um, but, you know, not doing that anymore because of the coup. So if we restart that, does that necessarily mean that, like, 
other operations in Niger restarted? And does that mean that like, we're supporting the military regime in Niger, even though it was a coup? I don't know. These are all questions I, I really have no freaking clue how to answer. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you do. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, look, it's a real conundrum. The U.S. made a major investment. This is one of two bases where we're flying drones from, the other being in Djibouti in Eastern Africa. And that that's legs are very long to get into the Sahel from there. You could do it from Europe, but again, very long legs for the for any aircraft operating of those long distances. Uh, it's really the conundrum for the United States in the Sahel over the last three years, it's just with with the coup in Mali, with the coup in Niger, the coup that isn't a coup in Niger, the you know the our ability to monitor these terrorist groups and to to strike blows at them, you know, via by providing intelligence from these operations. It's it's been dealt a significant blow over the last couple of years. Well, let's let's move on quickly to. Um, Wagner's uh, recent activities in Mali, given this game of, Th- I keep called we're going back to a Game of Thrones situation, but it is. You have the multiple actors, all with their own special interests. Um, is Wagner impacting the situation in any way positively in Mali? Are they inflaming the situation further? Yeah, I wouldn't say positively at all. Um, same same here. Inflame. Yeah, inflaming is the best way to put it way to put this diplomatically and i think i did it best in in the article is that you know they're russia's favorite human rights abusers um and that's exactly what they do in mali um the government in bamako the military regime in bamako is sort of playing a divide and conquer game with different communities especially in in the center um wherein they're alleging that some communities are supporting jnim uh, but as I mentioned previously, a lot of these communities were were subjugated to, you know, comply with JNIM Sharia law in return for ending blockades of their cities. And a lot of community leaders accepted that. I get it. Uh, but, you know, Mali takes that or they're they're using that as an excuse to leverage or, you know, imply that these these communities are just jihadis. So Russia, which is all sorry, Wagner Group, even though we all know it's Russia, um, is they're all too happy to sort of engage in these games with with Mali. Um, so the Malian military and Wagner have, over the past couple, you know, since Ma- Wagner deployed Mali in late 2021, they've sort of played these games where they go into these communities that are alleged to be jihadi sympathizers or jihadis themselves, and they straight up massacre them. Um, there was one in Mora, which is this... Uh, community in central Mali where they killed hundreds of people. Um, Extrajudicially, they they had these mock trials essentially of well, you're a jihadist, you're a jihadist, you're a jihadist, and they killed all of them. Um, you know, this and this is purely just to divide and conquer central Mali. Of you know, there's good communities and there's bad communities. The bad communities are getting killed. Good communities who are quote unquote loyal to the state, they can survive. And Wagner is all too happy to, you know, be complicit in that and, and engage in that, explicitly engage in that. Um, and, you know, they do some combat operations against JNIM, especially in the center, uh, even though they also have lost aircraft in recent days. Uh, they also have been ambushed quite heavily in recent days. Um, so in terms of their actual operations against, J- against JNIM, it sort of ebbs and flows. 
Sometimes they kill a lot of JNIM. Sometimes JNIM kills a shitload of Wagner. Um, so it goes back and forth on that. But I think Wagner's main role right now is essentially regime protection for the the military regime in Bamako of that divide and conquer strategy. They're also like being force multipliers, uh, and they are the state, you know, security forces or the new, you know, state patron of Bamako, I should say. Um, once the Fran- the French were kicked out, Wagner came in and these are the new dogs in town. Uh, and, you know, as we've seen Wagner elsewhere, such as in CAR or Sudan or Ukraine, Libya, whatever, they do nasty things and they're, they're, they're still doing it in Mali and they're going to continue to do it. Yeah. And they're being paid well to do it as well. I mean, very paid. I mean, they're paid tens of millions of dollars a month. I think 10 million maybe was the last estimate I saw. I uh, you know that's probably higher when you take in some of their other contracts that they've leveraged with the, with the regime, which is they also have access to artisanal gold mines uh, in some parts of Mali, which uh, very lucrative deals that, They've also sort of etched out in the CAR in Sudan where, yeah, they'll fight for these bad actors, but they're getting paid under the table. Uh, just buku bucks, essentially. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Wagner really, you know, fills, checks all the boxes for the characters of a mercenary organization. Um, the money-making, the brutality, the extrajudicial activities. It's... Um, yeah. It's, and, and it's I, real depressing. <laughs> I hate the term expert in general. I never call myself that. I like, I'm a learner. I'm a scholar. Like I'm always learning. There's, there's always more to learn. Uh, but like, I'm definitely not a quote unquote expert on Wagner or, or it's former leader Pergosian. So I, a lot of people have been asking, you know, what now for Wagner's African stuff, it's Pergosian. Uh, nothing seems to have changed so far. Uh, there's been rumblings that like, the Russian state is like trying to subjugate all the Wagner contracts, sort of national, like nationalize these contracts, which could be happening, but it still means Wagner guys are going to be on the ground. So to me, again, not an expert, again, hate that term, but I'm not someone who studies Wagner that closely. Uh, doesn't seem to have really changed their MO that much in the, in the Sahel and much of Africa rather. And that's what really matters. It looks like a meet the old bo- meet the new boss, same as the old boss situation there in uh, when it comes to Wagner in Africa and and in general uh, as well. Um, yeah, you know, and it's it's funny, and I'll, I'll just briefly mention this, and we'll, and we'll wrap it up. It you know when I look at Mali, I, I it reminds me so much of Syria. Find me a good actor to work with who who that's effective on the ground. And, you know, I know with Syria, people say, well, it's the SDF. But as we could see now, the SDF is starting to turn on its sort of Syrian democratic forces, which really is the Turk, uh, the uh, Kurdistan uh, Workers Party, which is a foreign terrorist organization, which we've allied ourselves with. That's just how bad things are. In no, and Syria. I think your your keyword was effective there because, yeah. like, there were definitely good guys, good insurgents that were good but like the u.s never fully supported them or never wanted to fully support them so it's like kind of shot ourselves in the foot but again off topic for this but like no effective is the key word because there really wasn't an effective partner other than sdf which has its whole litany of problems exactly and that and like you know 
if we decide to so off topic from Molly, but like, (laughs) no, but I don't think it is. I mean, you know, the the point there is like, who do we if if we are going to get targeting information, we wanted to start going after JNIM because it's starting to pose an external threat, which I think is ridiculous. I think you have to look at the network itself as the entire organization of al-qaeda or the islamic state as a threat because it all the the external attacks or the attacks against the west are fed from the insurgencies but that's a whole nother conversation which i'm sure we've had here on generation jihad multiple times but let's say we did want to start targeting who do we work with in mali to get targeting information or who do you know it's such a difficult situation but um let's let's finish it off here uh, caleb so let's get your take on here why when we you know i opened it up and i said you know you and i've had this long-running conversation you know which which is the next you know jihadist bastion is it mali or is it somalia why do you come down on the side of mali well in addition to like everything i've weighed out in my long ramblings here which hopefully the listeners continued on this this far i mean i think we're at like 40 something minutes uh that's short for us here yeah, it's true. If you paid attention, though, I, all the, the the reasons I listed are just two separate but sort of linked jihadi insurgencies, plus now another rebellion slash civil war with the Tuareg. Um, but also, like, the main thing is timelines. Um, the French were kicked out, which by virtue means that the Americans and all the Europeans were kicked out. And the UN was recently kicked out. The UN will be gone by the end of this year in Mali. And they're focused left? on they're focused on withdrawing now. They're not. Yeah, they're withdrawing. They're not doing anything. Yeah. Um, and so, who's left to be the you know ally, security ally, security partner for Bamako? It's Wagner, who also can't really do much. And if it's they do, inflaming the problem, right? And if they do anything, it's it's just making the situation worse. So to me, it's just like when you look at that compared to Somalia, which Somalia is another can of worms that like. You know, we've talked about so many times on this podcast, and we've written about of like, yeah, there was that big. Technically, still is a counteroffensive against Shabab, but you know, if you look at the past week, the momentum seems to be turning back in the favor of Shabab with doing so many different, you know, large scale raids on Somali military bases, foreign military bases, that and and suicide bombings, so like tons of suicide bombings. Shabab Shabab is doing, uh, but. The timeline is different there. You still have thousands of thousands of African Union troops. You have, you know, newly trained uh, Somali soldiers coming in every month. You also still have Turkey and the United States doing airstrikes, uh, which and allegedly UAE, although that was never confirmed. So you still have like all these state allies assisting the government in Mogadishu. But in December 2024, all of African Union forces there should be gone if they don't extend it, uh, which means, you know, I think they're down to like 16, 15,000, somewhere around there. Troops, once they're all gone, who's there to help? It's going to be airstrikes and whatever the Somali military can do. But that gives, you know, some time for Somalia to kind of think that through. Mali no longer has that timeline. It is, it is now. Um, even with the UN still technically there, they're they're focused on withdrawing. They're not doing anything. The only other security partner is Wagner, who's making the situation worse. There's really nothing that Bamako can do, but kind of face this alone. And JNIM and I, the Islamic State know that. And again, for whatever reason, 
Maui also think it's wise to go to war again with the Tuareg. And it's just state collapse seems more inevitable to me in Maui in the short to midterm than it does Somalia. Um, and it's just, I'm more optimistic for Somalia, which to many might be a funny phrase or funny thing to say, but I think they're, Somalia still has a glimmer of hope. With yeah, Maui, yeah. I, I have no optimism for Maui, which I'm sorry for any Malians listening, but it's like hard to see situation improving there. Caleb, I couldn't agree anymore. I mean, if you know, I'll, I'll briefly say, you know, the pot, the pot is boiling for both countries. We're still barely keeping that lid on Somalia and in Mali, the lids off, and it's it's just a matter of overflowing onto the stove right now. So, yeah, it's a grim situation. I I concur with your assessment. You know, thanks again for writing that article at Long Word Journal. Um, I know I shouldn't be thanking you for that, but uh, it greatly appreciate co co editor. It's also my job. Yeah, it is. But it was when you when you first mentioned it to me, I just because uh, we been again, you know, for those of you listening, we talk about this a lot, but to get it in print and then get us gives us the opportunity to get this discussing this on the podcast. It's it's really important. Uh, the conversations right. are nice, but uh, getting it down and getting it on the record, because I, I yeah. really do. I'm really worried about the, the situation there. That's that's honestly the hardest part. I mean, the conversation we had earlier this week is just trying to write on shabab's advances in somalia all these attacks by the time sit down to write it they've done another large-scale one so it's just constant going back and researching and looking at more information getting ready to write it and then they do another one yes. uh so eventually all that to say eventually we'll get that up and we'll have another pod and we can talk all about somalia uh, and its messes uh but yeah it's, it's sometimes it's a struggle to actually get it you know pen to paper and then podcast yeah, you know, it's funny, Caleb, you mentioned that that was easier for me to do 10 years ago. Now I I just my brain cranks so much more. I'm thinking about it. Did I get everything here? But uh, that's a whole nother problem. Probably one for my therapist. Caleb, thanks again for the excellent conversation. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Hopefully we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.